Welcome, lovers of music and life. Sound and Light is brought to you by the Vast Institute and Jim Cohen Sherpa. Our hosts, Jim Cohen and Michelle Sherman, both career leaders in design and human development areas, have created this series to inform, entertain, and educate you about the powerful influence of music in designing and leading happy, healthy lives. They sincerely believe that there is magic in the music. Today, they provide inspiration and strategy to leaders of all stripes in their efforts to develop their business and brain trust by cultivating the invention of new ideas, concepts, and approaches in an enlightened and intentional manner. Our series highlights their journey and insights about the sustaining power of music and how it's tied to their personal lives, lives focused on creativity, imagination, and supporting the personal fulfillment of others. Welcome to Sound and Light. I'm Michelle Sherman. And I'm Jim Cohen. Welcome. It's great to have you listening to this very first episode in a series that we hope expands everyone's understanding of kind of where we're coming from about music and life and brings you into the conversation. So we're thrilled to have you here. And we thought we'd start with a little background, why we're doing this and what we're up to. We got to talking a while ago about the power of music and and how it saved our lives in different ways for both of us from different points of view. So the things that are consistent are we're both from New York City. We both grew up there. Michelle saying yay. And lived to tell the tale. And lived to tell the tale. So there is slight difference. I'm from Manhattan and Michelle's from Brooklyn. The now hipper place. You know there's a difference. <laughs> You know, we we both grew up with a lot of music in our heads, in our ears. It was everywhere. And in my from my point of view, I ended up playing music and have a background in the arts. And so I was always out there with my ears open and had this spirit of listening. And it's important to me. It's it's made a difference in my life. Michelle, I don't want to speak for you, however. My perception of you is that you are here to help us expand the light. And so this notion of music and light, of sound and light, seem to be very important to us. And and we thought we'd love to share our stories and our perspectives with you. There's another little aspect of this that I'd throw on the table. And it's this. In my work, I deal with inventing the future, working with people to do that. And one of the keystones of that is this notion of diversity coming from different points of view. And there's no better example in my mind of how that really works in real life than music. Different players playing different instruments coming from different backgrounds together combining into a sound. It's a very cool thing to use as a metaphor. And often when we create teams to design projects. We tell our team members that this project is like playing jazz. So in a way, uh, talking about music is also talking about the way we design things and perceive life and the influences that it makes on our lives. So 
we're curious about each other's stories, each other's backgrounds. And we thought this is kind of a vast subject. There's lots of it to discuss. A good place to start, we thought, would be at the beginning. So with that in mind, I have a question for my pal, Michelle, which is, tell us about your earliest memories of music in your life. What was it? Where did it come from? What did it sound like? Good to be with you, Jim. From everything we've discussed, you bring the sound and I bring the light and then we get to share and mix it up. So thank you. This is very exciting. I just want to say that music showed up in my world with my parents. They, as someone who grew up in Brooklyn, somebody who came from a very diverse background, my family was second generation, middle class, and they were very excited about having diverse friends. My dad marched with Martin Luther King, and they were extremely progressive. So music was their way of experiencing diversity. They would run to the Apollo as kids to hear Frank Sinatra. They were very excited about jazz. You talk about jazz. Jazz is that kind of freewheeling, hey, you can you can say anything and do anything even within the constraints of music. Uh, and so early on, I always enjoyed the fact that Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, who I would meet later on, and we can discuss that in another episode. And a lot of beautiful music was coming into my house, and especially the fact that they were bringing their friends over. On Saturday nights, at about two o'clock in the morning, the doorbell would ring, and Marge Dotson and Uncle Perk, who was Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, who graduated as well from the Music Academy, the High School of Music and Art, uh, he would come over and Heinz, Heinz and dad were friends with theirs and they would just like hang out and talk about jazz. So it was like this exciting, people were out there, there were beautiful experiences. Music was definitely a treasured joy and asset. And one of the things that, as you said earlier, Jim, saved my life. Music was a guide. It was a direction. Peter Townsend in The Who might have been my th first therapist. It was a very exciting thing. And then besides the jazz and all of that beautiful music that was just seeping through and Ella's singing and Cole Porter, I had the opportunity to spend time with my cousin Charlotte. Uh-huh. And Charlotte was into musicals. So I knew all the words to South Pacific. Right. Oliver, Fiddler on the Roof, by the time I was... Five, ten. I would listen and listen and sing and act and have a lot of fun. And musicals, again, gave me the opportunity to stimulate, as we do at VAST, the positive imagination. Did you guys go to musical theater with your family, like Broadway? Absolutely. Well, it was expensive. And yeah. we were, we were, you know, kind of middle, middle. So, um, so we would go, but I remember, especially one time, my sister and I, she was in school, she went to NYU. And in 1971, we got to see Zero Mustel doing Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. Mm -hmm. I even saw Evan Hansen, dear Evan Hansen, a couple of years ago. I mean, Broadway and musicals have enriched my life. And so I've really loved that I spent a lot of time alone in my room listening to the words and realizing the world was a large place. And then I think the last experience that was most interesting from my early childhood, Jim, was the fact that 
It was a way to instruct, and it is a way to instruct people about their culture. Yeah. So in fourth grade, I got, for my birthday, I received the, Mon uh, the Mamas and the Papas first album <laughs> with California Dream and all of them in a bathtub. Yep. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. You know, sixth grade, I got the White Album. Uh-huh. And, and so it was a real exciting thing to listen. Um, my sister had a Victroller, and I just enjoyed it thoroughly. You know, I remember listening to the monkeys on TV and thinking to myself, wow, I'm a believer. Hmm. I believe in people. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And yourself, did you, did you enjoy going to musicals? Did you have a good time? experiencing some of the cultural treasures that were right there as a child um, yeah, yeah. around New York. How, how did that land for you? There's something very New York about this. Now, obviously, we're both New Yorkers, so we're talking about it, and it's our frame of reference. But when I hear you talk about the jazz era in New York and what that meant, it's, it's so potent, like that whole conversation and those people and what they were up to, mm -hmm. how remarkable it was that they were playing that kind of music in, in that era. And when I'm saying that era for me is the fifties, late forties, fifties. So to answer your question directly, yeah, we went to Broadway plays. I remember seeing Judy Holiday in Bells Are Ringing. Wow. With my folks. It, it's like one of my earliest memories. Mm -hmm. I was also dragged to, Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic Children's Concerts, which they, they they probably had in the holiday season. Right. Carnegie Hall, somewhere. And I grew up around a lot of art and music people. And I had an older brother who's like eight years old. So my reference points go back to, um, I'm going to say the late 50s, early 60s, when I was sort of first became aware really aware of music and what was playing on the Grundig uh, hi-fi at home, which was pretty sophisticated in those days, was Harry Belafonte, Frank Sinatra, certainly. And then sort of creeping into this mix was folk music of the pre-folk era and very New York and, and kind of highly political. So we grew up in Stuyvesant Town, which was a middle-class, ostensibly housing project that's now got a big story behind it. It was sold. It's become a big thing. But it's a beautiful place, Stuyvesant. It's the southern portion of Manhattan. Right. It's, uh, it's between 20th Street and 14th Street. So I grew up there in a concrete apartment. Music sounded pretty good. And I somehow got exposed to this and got into the rhythm of it. And my brother played the guitar. Mm -hmm. So there were instruments around the house. At a very early age, I started taking trumpet lessons in Greenwich Village, right off of Bleecker Street. Mm -hmm. And, you know, got exposed to that and thought playing jazz trumpet was cool. Okay. At that time, I was like 10, 9. Jim, I just want to uh, clarify for our listeners that basically you're just a couple of years older than I am without giving anybody's age away because I just turned 20 and you turned 23. 
And so, but you're just a couple of years older. So you were able to experience things in Manhattan and uh, that I was just a little bit too young, my older sister, a little hippie. So you had that experience firsthand that so many people might not have even noticed was going on in the village during the sixties. I just love hearing those stories. And even before, you know, there was a folk music boom in the sixties and there, were, there was controversy because people played guitars and banjos in the fountain at Washington Square Park. And at some point, the city decided to chase them out of there. It was a big deal. The reference points for me, musically, which, have, which still hold true and get lost in our discussion of music today, are people like the Weavers and Odetta. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, Pete Seeger was in the Weavers. Mm-hmm. And the political side of this is they were blacklisted during the McCarthy era. And so people on the liberal Labor, side of the equation, organizing, union people. Labor, um, yeah, these songs who... came, a lot of the music came from labor unions and, and movements around that. And so I grew up in that, in the folk music era before it became the popular folk music era. As time rolled along, I ended up taking banjo lessons at a place called the Noah Wolf School of Folk Music. And now we're sort of skipping forward. Oh, okay. It was pivotal for me then. And I think so being grounded in people like Odetta and the Weavers and Pete Seeger, and as a kid going to concerts in Carnegie Hall to see those people was amazing, exhilarating, to see acoustic musicians carry an audience like that. It's something you want to be a part of and sing along, and people did. So it was it was quite uninhibited, right? And it sort of frees you up to be creative, and, and it had a profound effect on my life. Well, I love hearing that, Jim, because as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, music was my great escape. Yeah. I heard what was possible. I knew there were other places. I realized it it brought joy, it changed my emotional tenor. I had things happen in the first 10 years of my life that were part of, you know, everybody's story, but they just really forced me to understand that I wanted something else. Yeah. Than what I was given. I did not want to end up being a girl who went from Brooklyn to Manhattan and grew her nails this long, married a neurosurgeon, and then <laughs> had... Uh, a boyfriend as a tennis instructor, an affair with her tennis instructor. I wanted something else. And so I, music gave me opportunities to really understand that. And I think talk about folk music. When I was about five years old, Uncle Pert was on WNET channel 13. Sure. I was in my little outfit with my sister, Lori, and we sang all of those Woody Guthrie, uh, Arlo, you know, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger songs. He was given a grant and he got a group of diverse little boys and girls together back in 1963. I'm sure he was doing this to make money so he could finance his symphonies. He was a really brilliant musician. And I thought, wow, all these people, Saturday night living room, and here it is in the world. It was a time where Mm -hmm. you didn't see a lot of African-American men in charge, but Uncle Pert was in charge of this. He t- and it was such a joy to see uh, what came of all of that beauty and all of that uh, passion. So I, I love those stories. So right. you, you basically got around Greenwich Village as a kid. And I know 
going to talk about adolescence in episode two, which is just so rich. But what was that like to be a little guy zipping around Manhattan, going to music lessons and hearing some of the finest, soon to be famous people in the world? It was crazy. Uh, So here's here's a conundrum that I still have. I don't know how I got where I was as, as a nine-year-old or eight-year-old wandering around New York City, but I did. <laughs> I don't know what they did. They like they put you on the bus with 35 cents and say, go. I must say that New York in those days was it was blissfully naive and this was in the 60s. Yeah, so it's sort of like I would say the late 50s, early 60s. And so One of the things I vividly remember is going to Carnegie Hall, and this is maybe a little bit later. One, I don't know if I was with anybody, but I went to concerts. And after the concerts, you'd stand outside on like 7th Avenue, 6th Avenue, whatever that is, west of the building, west side of the building. And there was like this stairway that went up to the dressing rooms and people would wait. And then eventually the artists would let you come up and meet them. So I went to the Weavers reunion concert at Carnegie Hall. This is, I know it was like 1963-ish. And find myself backstage getting things signed by Pete Seeger. You know, like as a kid and and like just being immersed in that world was Fascinating, fascinating. And the people, you know, it wasn't the rock star era and uh, there weren't groupies and it was way, it was very uh, sort of traditional folk music-y, very respectful. Mm-hmm. And these people were incredible. Oh, absolutely. And very gracious. Like there was no ego. And so you could go there as a kid and say, Pete, would you sign mm-hmm. my uh, program here? And he would. And then you'd wander home with this I doubt thing, if you know? he ever thought uh, about it in terms of ego, Jim. He was someone who cared no. very deeply about the well-being of others. You talk about being backstage and what a thrill that is. And then you start thinking about all the times you made it backstage in your life. And I, I remember, if I may just share that, as I said, my father indirectly knew Frank Sinatra. He was best friends with George Unger, who was the Rat Pack jeweler in Manhattan. Maybe your family provided the furs. Well, my uncle George provided the jewels. And and so my dad, who was six foot five, God bless him, would deliver the jewels. And then he'd come in home and he'd say, hey, listen, Uncle George asked me to drop this off with uh, Natalie Wood and, and Robert Wagner. And he only just wanted to meet Natalie Wood, of course. So he had met them and they were lovely people. And then one time he said, let's go down, see Sammy Davis Jr. He was friends with them to see him on Broadway. And that again was an experience that was an out of body experience because I'd been to Broadway and it could be very, very white. So not bad, just very pink. And of course, Yiddish theater started there and a lot of things started there, but we were backstage and we went backstage after and got to meet Uncle Sammy and who was visiting, but Janet Leigh. And what I'm seeing is this man who had done this entire show had put his heart out and how he went out of his way to make sure everybody else was taken care of. And then I've read about some of the poor treatment that he had to endure 
because of the color of his skin. And you just could see his, his passion, his compassion, his love, his inclusion. Of course, you know that he rocked the boat by wanting, by marrying uh, my Brit. Um, at the beginning of, of the right. 1960s. But what a, a, an amazing experience to see him, this beautiful African-American man in command and in charge of the theater, of the sh- I mean, like it was like he was the alpha male in the room. And of course, that's what experiences right. I had was all of these beautiful men and women who were seen and shown in their fullest and most appreciated glory. And I remember what a nice man he was. And boy, did he work hard. Yeah. He's one of those kind of lost stories these days, too. I don't think people I think about Sammy Davis Jr. much. And he sang. I think he was a drummer. He danced with his uncle mm-hmm. and father, right? They were in a in a trio. He was in a movie when he was six. Man worked real hard. And he was and right. He was he was in movies and he was multi-talented, multifaceted. I remember walking by him on Sixth Avenue, and you could just feel the aura coming off the man. And he was walking with like a walking and stick, a, a black lacquered walking stick with a gold crown on it on sixth Avenue. It's like, okay, you're a dude. Yeah. And I was thinking about the diversity piece just because everyone is working to create greater equity in their lives right now and awake, awaken to their little, uh, you know, their scotomas and their blind spots. Every single person on the planet is in the process of looking at, at what they can to be better. I was just thinking about what courage and how music has always been the great equalizer. Even in high school, which is really important, all of the smart kids and all the geeks and all the freaks and all the hitters, all of that, we'll go into that in greater detail in our next episode, they got along because they were in the band. It just brings people together. I love that about music. So this is where we started, you know, this discussion about the beauty of diversity played out and the the beauty of courage and risk played Absolutely. out right because music is tricky and when you find yourself being asked mm-hmm. to play in front of people it gets even trickier because you have to go okay uh, we're gonna go do this now and just see what it sounds like so for me having grown up in that sort of singer songwriter folky thing to start which later turned into the Beatles Anybody that can get up on stage with a guitar alone and sing a song, they get a huge award. I don't care if it's good or bad. Just getting up there is a real tribute to the soul. And quite courageous. I I have had the opportunity to to do a one-woman show. And since I wrote it, I got to put in the, I, I played the flute. And most people who know me and they've known me for years have never heard me play the flute or the saxophone, of which I own one of each. It's a very private thing for me. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like, wow, surprise. So maybe, you know, I'm thinking maybe I'll need to become more public with it. Jim, I have a question for you because I'm just so fascinated by what you experienced. So in the 60s, you were all over Manhattan, enjoying um, the folk scene, listening to what was going on. Did you have any inkling 
that it was like change in our culture, that a lot of things were emanating from that scene that you were part of, the rock scene, the, the, folk, the folk scene, because so much of our culture shifted as a result of those Joan Baez, Dylan, and so many others right. who, were, who were sitting in Greenwich Village next to you at the, at the coffee house, snapping their fingers as bohemian yeah. beatniks. Right. It was, it was kind of amazing to be at the epicenter of it because, you know, the people that were talked about so became superstars, especially mm -hmm. Dylan, you know, who lived on West 4th Street and slept around the village. And I think what was pivotal is the merger of folk music and the kind of music that told a story and the civil rights movement. And what's often forgotten at the March on Washington in 1963 is that Dylan actually, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and a few other people, I think John Baez too, mm -hmm. I played that. there that day. And, and so as the protests movements grew, the songs of the movements were written by these people and blowing in the wind became the song. And I think the world started to shift around that. And so there was this move away from traditional folk music, like singing English folk songs, which was kind of a thing. Joan Baez pretty early was that. And then suddenly this guy shows up that sounds kind of like Woody Guthrie, but he's written his own songs. And the songs are quite progressive and, and quite liberal and quite aimed at diversity, humanism. Being authentic, you know, being yourself. And his voice was weird. And so it took a long time for that to kind of turn into the mainstream, but you could feel it shifting. And Dylan was certainly an early indicator uh, of where things were headed. It broke wide open. So this is 1964 when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And you know, that the world changed. And I would say the, the other little component of that that's forgotten is John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963 and the country was in mourning. And the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan in, I think January of 64. Yes. And they were like the antidote to the misery and suddenly the whole world lit up and it was amazing. It's funny, Jim, you, people say, where were you when pe the man landed on the moon? Well, many of us can say where we were when John Kennedy was assassinated and where we were if we saw the first Beatles showing on Ed Sullivan. And I was at both. So I remember my dad wanting to turn off the TV because the Beatles were noisy and they were loud and they weren't jazz and they weren't cool. And my turned it off and then my mom went back, turned it on for us. <laughs> Frank Sinatra did not like rock and roll. So I think my dad might have heard Frank talk yeah. about rock and roll is not the, you know, the future. He, he was not a big rock fan until he uh, needed to be later on with Elvis. So. Right. so I have another question for you, Jim. This is fabulous. Thank you. Love, love hearing your, your ideas and your stories because you study this, you think about it. I know you play. I know that you have uh, opportunities where you really delve into this. Do you think that the movement, the diversity, the inclusion, the, the civil rights movement and all of the music that perhaps as you use Dylan as an example, Joan Baez and Pete Seeger, others, 
uh, Woody Guthrie, that Dylan, especially in those guys and gals, they were able to get away with it because they weren't part of a record industry because there's the music and then there's the industry. As you go, yeah. as we talk and, uh, and move on in years and we talk about people like Tom Petty and others, and most recently Taylor Swift and others who have some issues with the music industry. And that's not necessarily yeah. to say they aren't working on improving all of that. I'm just saying, do you think they had that freedom uh, because they weren't trying to sell a record? They were more interested in the bohemian coffee, you know, sounds down in the village. They had a different motivation possibly at that point in their youth it was blissfully naive and i i also think they had dylan in particular was signed by good people john hammond signed him at columbia and watched over him and 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 i think he had a good manager and they really protected him and let him be a creative artist it's not that he wasn't about making money and, you know, ended up making Well, we're a very fortune. happy. He just sold his portfolio recently. And he's he's in the place where he needs to think about his future and his family. And it was a great thing to do. It wasn't a sellout in my book. It was a, like, hey, he created something and no, God bless him. All. I want him to enjoy it. He made a lot of stuff. You know, what's interesting about him as an artist, really as an artist artist, right? He saved everything. So what he sold recently, part of it was like everything he ever wrote on. <laughs> They're like matchbooks and napkins and stuff because the stuff that we create in the arts uh, are, is almost everything we touch. So if you if you actually treasure that, then it becomes part of this whole vocabulary of who you are. And he did it and he kept it and he he kept his songwriting uh, as well. And, and, you know, that's what you got. That is your art. They did have more freedom. And so how do you think this decade or you're growing up in this decade of 60s and 50s really set you up for your experience of life and music? Like, how did how did that platform get you going? So I think, you know, what I said before about courage, I think is an important. It's like courage and creativity, like seeing those people on stage pouring their hearts out and really like going for it gave me an insight about doing that, being creative, living a life like that, and it being okay. It's a little off the charts. It's a little unpredictable, but there are models for it. So music, one thing was the way things sound, right? I love the sound of things. I love songwriters and the words they use. The other thing is the model that they show us about how to live a life that is a full and rich one that may not be the usual. So it gives the creative person the courage to say, I could do that too. There's a feeling I get when I look to the West and my spirit is crying for leaving. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, plenty of those guidance and, and opportunity to stimulate one's imagination, stimulate the positive imagination. What did it do for you? Like, how did that, how did the sort of Sinatra era, Sammy Davis jazz stuff play out? Well, I have to say my father, as I said, was very involved with uh, the civil rights movement. He felt it was important. And so in conjunction with that, I was very proud of the, of the music and the people that I knew, uh, had a really good experience. It, uh, it kind of, opened my eyes to other cultures without leaving Brooklyn. 
other ways of living, other foods, other, and I, and I understand New York is that place where you can taste and example anything. But like I said, we were in Brooklyn, middle, middle class. So we might not have had all those opportunities, but through the music and through meeting Frank for breakfast, I didn't know who it was for until my father told me a couple of years later, like, remember that breakfast with Uncle George? That was Frank Sinatra. And I was like, oh yeah, now I know he wanted me to have all those maraschino cherries. I mean, just amazingly lovely man. Just experiences of his wanting to spend time talking to me and my dad while everybody was trying to get his attention. And and me, you know, going, well, you know, like he's a nice guy, wants me to have all these maraschino cherries. Uh, but what opened up for me was the fact that people are people and there's something about um, music and its emotional healing properties. So when I was sad, I could sing, you know, a song from Oliver. When I was trying to work through something and realize, oh, well, you know, I had talked earlier about South Pacific, the song, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be poured in your dear little ear that you've got to be carefully taught. Now, that song they did not want to include in South Pacific. It was too risque at the time, but I believe it was the authors, Rogers and Hammerstein. They basically fought for it and said, no way, Jose. But that guided me to realize I wasn't alone. And, and so it was escape. It was, it was comfort. And it was also, I had a lot of questions that my, my parents were not necessarily able or capable of answering. And so there were great minds and mystics way beyond what was available to me. And who didn't want to kiss Davy Jones if you were in fourth grade, you know, and Paul McCartney and all of that. So I grew up, I grew up feeling like we started with jazz, but the decade ended with energy, enthusiasm, rock and roll. And I was a little hippie because my sister was older and included me. So I was 13 and she was 16. She was at NYU and I got to tag along. So I saw more than most and experienced a lot and uh, had a really good time transitioning to adolescence through music. Yeah. I, I love this whole thing about opening up new vistas for people like, you know, one safe refuge, like, wait, there are other people that think like me. Two, wow, I could go to this fantasy place when I turn this on. And maybe three is unlocking the like the stuff nobody talks about. Like, I think it's Muddy Waters' song when they say something about hoodoo the voodoo man. You know, like, oh. And Robert Johnson's got a hellhound on his trail. Like, yeah. Okay, so what's all that about? And so you're, you're opening up these stories and things it's like wow and and i think um that that's pivotal as much as it was in our uh growing up as it is today that you know young people are still getting the message through the music in in, in ways that is mm, interesting liberating uh provocative it's the stuff your parents aren't talking about and we can get it you know by listening and then we're part of this tribe Absolutely. At VAST, we teach leaders how to develop that kind of uh, creativity and positive imagination and the importance of what you do feed your mind. And I have to say that I've been listening to some of the songs that are popular songs on the radio, and they deeply concern me because they do not 
talk about treating human beings well. Now that's maybe two songs out of 10, but little girls are listening to those the way I listen to the monkeys. And um, we are un, we are entrained without even realizing it through music. So we also have to be very careful what we listen to the studies that they've done, Jim. And this is part of the illumination of, you know, this, the sound and light is like, well, what about music and what does it do for us? Well, if you listen to metal rock, you go weak. If you listen to Mozart, your body becomes stronger and healthier. It's just the way we're wired to deal with the resonance and certain things resonate at a uh, frequency or in ways that allow us to harmonize as a, as a system and others kind of get us to <clears throat> and uh, and to be aware of that the messaging and to also be aware of the impact that certain things have on our physical being the vibration the loudness excuse me what'd you say i went to too many rock concerts you know the the preciousness of the ability to interact with the music but to also respect its power to influence and to also guide or move in a particular direction i absolutely do and i would i'd add to that just to sort of maybe wrap us up but also bring us to the present Having been through this year of change, and uh, that's putting it mildly, in the world of music... It's evergreen, as we both know. That's why we look so young. Right. <laughs> and so musicians got stopped in their tracks. We you know, can't play a live gig. And so they've been unbelievably resourceful. But part of that was allowing people in to, to see sort of the unvarnished version of, of what they do and opening their lives in their homes. And so there've been phenomenal, very personal concerts from bedrooms and living rooms and and outdoor stages and places thrown together to keep the communication going. So to all the musicians that happen to be tuning in to listen to this, bravo bravo for your resourcefulness and courage because the live gig will come back but allowing us to see you without heavy production is also kind of a miraculous thing and to be cherished as we go. Absolutely. I thank you, Jim, for pointing that out. The last concert I saw was March 1st, 2020 in Dallas. The Eagles played Hotel California. I'd never had the blessing of seeing them, got to meet Don Henley and all of them from from the 10th row or however. (laughs) But I feel so blessed that I've been to concerts and I cannot wait to support my favorite artists in whatever way, whether what we've been doing is we've been buying music, we've been supporting folks, um, making sure people have instruments, making sure that they know what is available to them and that people care. And that's true for all artists. I do want to say one thing before we close, and that is, The thing about music is we don't fully understand how much of a force of nature it is. And I want to say that because, you know, if we stop and we look at it's a force for good and it's a force for distraction, it's a force for all of things, but it's a force of nature. Because if we stop and look at the fact that human beings had to come up with the notes, the I mean, being able to document the subjective 
hearing of something and then create symphonies and then create instruments. I have to tell you, music is one of the greatest achievements of humankind to date. But if we could figure out how to subjectively create music, we can subjectively create heaven on earth. We're capable of it. And being able to do everything that we've had to do to enjoy, hear, share music from primitive times to today indicates to me I've got a lot of optimism about our ability to solve problems, get the job done, and have what it takes to bring us to a better place. I just wanted to put that in there. That's, you know, just really, I'm very passionate about as an example of what human beings are capable of for the good. Yeah, this is the power of, of music that it was invented and sort of worked up into a form, but also its power to bring people together of all kinds around a universal theme and sing together, go to a Springsteen concert every once in a while, folks, should we have them again? It's the church and, it, and it's a good thing. And I think this is a great, great place to pause to, to, to remember the, the healing power of music the power of community of music and the creativity of music. And I think this is a wonderful dialogue. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. What we hope to do is continue the story. Our next episode is going to be about adolescence and all of the experiences that we've had to share with our listeners, hear a little bit more about what, you know, we've all had those imprints. And I believe that adolescence is when you get imprinted by music. I once met Timothy Leary and we talked about imprinting. And he just said, you know, if you can get it when by the time you're like, you know, 15, you usually have it, you know, so the music is uh, stays with us, it stays with us the rest of our lives for that adolescent period. I think it's what gives us our value system to move forward as adults, because we're kind of, I mean, I was a little scared. Uh, so I'm very excited to hear about the adolescent portion of your experience and how you went to the high school of music and art. Yes, it, I did. It was a great thing. I hope there's some music and artists out there listening. The, I graduated high school in 1967, so you can only imagine what was going on at the high school of music and art that year. I'm very excited to hear about more. And I just want to say thank you for your insights and everyone listening. We are so appreciative of the opportunity to encourage people through this podcast series. Anything in closing, Jim? Turn up the volume, listen to music you love, support musical artists, be creative. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you for spending time with us on Sound and Light. We hope this episode has entertained and inspired your creative side. For more information about Michelle and Jim, their backgrounds, stories, and the music that fills their lives, visit Michelle at vastinstitute.com and Jim at jimcohensherpa.com. Until next time, enjoy the music in your lives, be well, stay safe, and feel free to reach out to us. <laughs>